This message by Joy Chen, entitled Shouts of Joy, was recorded at Wellspring Church on March 10, 2019. The text for this message is Psalm 126. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm 126. We'll be reading Psalm 126, the entire psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out with weeping, Bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I wanted to introduce our guest speaker for today. His name is Joey Chen. He's pastoring a church in the Sunset area of San Francisco. And we were just talking about the fact that it is great to have a church that loves Christ loves his people, and loves the city of San Francisco. We all know how much the Bay Area needs gospel churches. So um, I met Joey a few years ago because of Hands at Work, actually. Uh, George was in town, uh, met with Toby and Jeff and Joey, and we had just a really rousing discussion about church, life, and the gospel. And so gotten to know him, so thankful for his love for Jesus and his love for the word, and so I want to welcome him as he preaches God's word today. When I come to Wellspring, it's good to see and hear what God is doing through the different ministries and partnerships that you guys have. I feel like I'm at home because many of the things that you guys are a part of are also what we are a part of, so it's uh, encouraging to see that. We are actually in San Francisco the, the only drop-off center for Operation Christmas Child. We've been for the last over a decade now, and so it's cool to see that kind of connection and encouragement. So I encourage you, if you've not been involved in that, uh, to pray for Tracy, to ask her lots of questions about what God is going to do and what she hopes to do and how you can encourage her. Uh, also, also with Hands at Work, that's how we got to know each other. And uh, it's I got to go last summer. I think when I preached her last, I had just gotten back. And uh, that has been a very formative time in my life to get to know God's heart for the, the least of these and to know how to begin to have a humble heart that serves and puts others before myself. And just seeing how God is at work in that midst has been a very transformative moment in my life. So if you've ever thought of going when the, the church has teams to go or you've not kind of made it part of your intentional prayer for the church, I encourage you to do that. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 126, one of my recent favorite psalms. It's been teaching me a lot about how to draw near to the Lord. So let's come to the Lord in prayer as we ask him to help us look at Psalm 126. Father, as we just sung, those words are still ringing in my mind. My sin, not in part, but the whole, how our sins are many, but your mercies are more. Father, let our hearts dwell on those truths and those promises. 
for many of us, those are things we still need to grasp. But I believe maybe for most of us, these are truths that are known in our heads and sometimes difficult to experience, to feel, to draw us to great worship of you and adoration of you. And so we need your spirit who is with us as we look at your word to to guide us to know those truths and in ways that would lead us to transform lives and lead us to emotions that are aligned to your glory, to understanding, to obedience. We ask for your word that we know is powerful and able to give life, to bring the kind of life that we need. As we were even just praying for many people who are going through difficult times, Father, may this word continue to to shape the kind of hope and joy we ought to have knowing you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In January 2017, I did something I never thought I would be able to do. I quit Facebook. I deactivated my account, deleted all the apps, and I, I didn't use it for the next maybe like 20 months. Eventually, I turned it back on because I was meeting a bunch of pastors and they were all asking me if I was on Facebook and I wasn't. And it was not an easy way to, I mean, you don't send each other emails anymore, so I wanted to connect with them. And so I put it back on, but it hasn't been ever since the same. Uh, now, before I even say anything else about why I did that or what it did, uh, I'm not trying to make some kind of moral judgment on the almost probably 99% of you who still use Facebook or any other social media platform. During that time, I still used Instagram. And so ironically, I was still using Facebook to some degree, but not the main platform. But one of the reasons I did it was I discovered that in my regular rhythms of life, I don't know if some of you actually now with the new OS updates on, if you have an Apple phone, you see, actually it's on Sunday morning. It always tells you how much you use your phone the previous week unless you disabled that. It's like the constant reminder every Sunday when you go to Jesus that I spend more time with you or my phone, which is very interesting. But I realized as I spent too much time uh, tracking through, looking at my news feed, that it was making me really angry. Irritated, frustrated, especially January 2009, uh, 2017 was a time right after the elections. And I discovered that during that time, whenever I looked at Facebook, I couldn't leave <laughs> joyful. I could only leave frustrated and angry. And so I stopped using it. Um, I couldn't look at my news feed without being frustrated or irritated or even at times envious and jealous as I look at my friends who seem to live on an endless vacation. I don't know if you have friends like that. They're always constantly on vacation. I know I'm not the only one. Uh, researchers are now looking into this, and many people have found that using social media platforms uh, does affect emotions, mental health, especially if you're prone to different kind of feelings already. Even Facebook themselves, uh, about a year ago, they admitted that when people passively use Facebook without actually actively contributing to it, it actually made them feel worse. They even admitted that. But I mention this because as I was recognizing the lack of joy in my own life, I wanted to rediscover it. And so I took some time to look through scripture to understand joy. It's something that doesn't come very naturally to myself, and yet I know I should have it. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to give us joy. The, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. And yet so many of us, myself included, find this to be so elusive, so difficult, something we know, yeah, 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 we should have joy, and we ignore it. We don't think deeply about it. And yet Christ came to give us joy. Now, 
when we think about joy, let me clarify, it's, it's not reliant on your temperament and your personality. Because there are some people, when you lose an hour of sleep like we did last night, they will still wake up with smiles on their face, singing songs in the morning. And I am not one of those people. And so if you come to me like that in the morning, we will not have a very friendly conversation. Some of you are just, you wake up early, it doesn't matter how much sleep you got, and your temperament, your personality is very joyful. That's not what scripture teaches when it comes to joy. It's not dependent on your temperament, your personality. It's also not the kind of superficial or temporal kind of circumstantial happiness we see. Many of us know different songs. We know songs that try and pump ourselves up or songs from different movies or feelings that we try and superficially create in. That's not what scripture calls for us to have either. I want to understand, as I looked at scripture, what real lasting joy is. And that's where I was led to Psalm 126, and it continues to shape my understanding of this. And so if you're someone who is in need of joy, lasting, real, God-given joy, this is a psalm for you. The structure of the psalm is in two halves. The first half in verses 1 to 3 call for us to look back to find joy, looking at the past. The second half, verses 4 to 6, have us look forward. And that is also a very helpful way for us to spend our time in Psalm 126. We're going to spend time looking back, because that's how we find joy, and then what it means to look forward as we anticipate and long for joy. Looking back, look at verses 1 to 3 with me again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I first want to say, and it may not need stating, but I think in some ways it does, that joy is a good thing. It may seem obvious, but I think it's a corrective that's needed, at least in my own thinking as I approach this topic, and in many of our churches. I think the language here is helpful. It's exuberant. It's laughter. It's shouting. We need to say that joy is good. It's something to be longed for because maybe many Christians, many churches, we, we almost feel like the Christian life should be one long funeral. It's somber. It's dark. It's serious. And, it, it, and, and it's appropriate. There are places for sober reflection, for silence, for, for reflecting upon our sins. And yet, there's also amazing, almost uncontrollable, unashamed joy in Scripture. Emotions that we know should happen in the Christian life, but often don't experience. I mean, think about the first miracle that Jesus did in John chapter 2. I call it the cranking up the party miracle. <laughs> he, he, the people have already been drinking and celebrating for a number of days, and Jesus brings out the best wine at the end. He brings out celebration and abundance. If you're the kind of person who thinks joy and laughter and shouting maybe have no place in the church or at least have a small, you know, kind of hidden by yourself kind of experience in the church. No, I think maybe the challenge of this psalm is an invitation for you to see that there is joy that is amazing and overflowing and expresses itself in, in verbal ways, in, in physical ways. And it should happen not only for ourselves, but even in our churches, even to the to nations, as we'll see. Now, the context of these verses, as it looks back, and many people have a, 
guesses. We don't know because it doesn't tell us specifically, but many people believe this may have been at the time in which the people of God were in exile from the Babylonian captivity in 586, and they're returning after 70 years of exile. We're not sure exactly, but if you were in captivity for 70 years under a foreign nation and now you're able to go back home, there would be shouts of joy. There would be celebration. That's maybe the circumstance. We don't know. But we do know, and this is something interesting. Notice the first group to recognize God's work. And it said among the nations, verse 2, the Lord has done great things with them. It said among the nations. This joy, this work of God is so overwhelming, so significant, even people who do not believe in the same God as the Hebrew people were recognizing it. And they were saying it, the Lord, your God has done great things for you. And then they recognize, wow, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This is amazing. Other people are taking notice at the goodness of God. It's so amazing. In verse 1, it says that it's like those in a dream. It's almost as if it's too good to be true, yet they have to pinch themselves to check to see if it's real. And it is. There are moments like this in your life where you you recognize God has been so good to me. Many of us, those of you who are married, if you can remember your wedding day, those are like those moments where you're standing, especially if you're a husband anticipating your bride coming down. It feels like a dream as you're marrying the the most beautiful person in the world. It felt like a dream to me on that day because I was sick with the flu and I drank a whole bottle of Dayquil. So, But for most people who are not sick on their wedding day, even if you are not intoxicated by some other means, you remember that day. It's like, this is a dream. How can God be so good to me? And I saw the, the picture of the, the newborn baby. Those are moments of your life. I mean, you're anticipating, you're waiting. God gives you this tremendous gift. That, that, those feelings of joy and being overwhelmed at the goodness of God feels like a dream, but it's real. The deliverance is so significant that it's expressed verbally and physically. They can't contain themselves. They shout and they laugh. I mean, this is not a mere chuckle. This is not the kind of cheesy Christian jokes that we have in the church. I like cheesy Christian jokes, so I keep a list of them. Uh, you ever hear this one? Uh, you know, before Boaz met Ruth, you know what he felt? He felt ruthless. Some of you are not laughing because you don't get my jokes. It's okay. You don't like those jokes. You're like, ah, oh, why did he tell that? I mean, that, that's not the kind of laughter. That's not the kind of joy that was present in the church. I have many more. I won't tell you. I won't waste your time. But this laughter, this joy... Is God doing something that is so amazing, it, it overflows? The history of God's people is full of moments like this. They know they have deliverance from Egypt. It's, it's built into the rhythms as they celebrate the Passover year over year, as they retell and read the word of God. God delivered us. It, it, it's experienced in, under the, the leadership of David and the kings who follow the Lord. It's experienced in the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls. God is working so tremendously, and He has worked so tremendously, they can't help but burst out in joyful laughter at how unreal this feels. Now, how do you get joy? This, I think this, 
is a glimpse into teaching us how to discover this elusive expression of our relationship to God. We look back at what God has done in history. Eugene Peterson says in his great book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is actually a, a series of lectures or almost some like small expositions on the, the Psalm of Ascent starting from Psalm 120. Uh, he has one chapter on Psalm 126, which could have just been the sermon. could have read that. I would have bettered my sermon. But here's a quote from it. Joy has a history. Joy is verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. Joy is nurtured by living in such a history. Being able to identify ourselves with what God has done in the past, to live in it, to nurture, to remember that as our history. So many of us, when we're looking for joy, we try and manufacture it. That's actually the premise undergirding the almost many businesses. The entire entertainment business is built under the premise that you're trying to give us and sell us joy, at least temporal ones. Look how much money and time is spent in entertainment. It's actually a joy factory. That's what they're trying to produce. Peterson puts it this way as we're trying to manufacture, seek for in so many different ways. He says society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. Never satisfies. It never lasts. We have to, if we're looking outside around us, keep making new things. Because joy that we find, that we produce, that we manufacture, can't last. Joy only comes as a product of overflowing from something that never ceases to fail. That never stops being good. That has to come from not looking inward, as many of the things in our society tell us to look. If you want to find who you are, find joy, find whatever it is you're looking for, they tell us in society to look in. No, Scripture always calls for us to look out objectively at something that doesn't change, that never fails promises. And that is only when we look at God's goodness and how he's acted in the past. That's the important lesson I think we see in these first three verses. If we want to find joy, look back at what God has done in past history. And we can do that in two ways. First, we need to see what God has done in the past by looking at the Word. It's important. This is why, and we don't just do it in January. I think at the end of the year and in January, everyone's excited to start reading the Bible again, right? Because you've made new resolutions. You want to read the Bible in a year, or at least read the New Testament in a year. And you start in January and you get to Leviticus and you stop. And you start over again next year and only you get as far as Exodus. And we never learn numbers or Deuteronomy or anything after that. It's a good time now if you've kind of already given up on that to encourage you to dive into the Word. I, some of you, if you are practicing Lent, I'd have another side conversation about Lent, but you know, if you actually gave 40 days in preparation for Easter, and they don't count Sundays because Sundays are mini Easter celebrations, but if you did 40 days, don't just look at it as self-denial of a, and changing your diet, but look at it as creating space to draw near to the Lord. I would encourage my church as I thought about and wrote about Lent this past week. You could finish the entire New Testament if you gave 30 minutes a day during the time of Lent. So rather than just merely giving up something to, you know, just as a spiritual version of dieting, actually draw near to the Lord. 
Spend some time reading his word, remembering how he has acted in history. One of the most amazing moments in my Christian life came when discovering Leviticus chapter 14. I actually got there and I was like, this is amazing. Understanding the day of atonement and connecting that to the sacrifice of Jesus. When that clicked for me, not just intellectually, but when that was shaping my heart, that's connected me to Christ in so such intimate ways. So do you know, do we know how God has acted in history, how he has worked to save and deliver? You look at the judges. If you read through the book of Judges, this is increasing failure rate of all the different people. As God's people get someone, they turn back for a little while, they, they go back again. And this is God's faithfulness to save again despite his people. You look at every person that God raises up, even the good ones, they have tremendous failures. And you see this and you're like, it can't depend on man. God is preparing us for something that is much bigger because all these people can't save us, but God is still faithful. He still saves despite our failures again and again and again. And as we look at these stories in the Old Testament and the New, even though they may seem like thousands of years away, we see again and again as the New Testament authors challenge us, this is our history. We are part of Abraham's family because we are in Christ. As you look throughout Scripture, this is your history. This is yours. And this is how God has acted in time for us, as well as for the Jewish people. That's one way we can look back. A second way, I think, is that we look back at our lives and we share that with each other. I mean, the Psalms here in Psalm 120 to Psalm 133, they're part of the Psalms of Ascent, where the people of God are going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast and celebration. And what they do in this time is collective. It's communal. They're, they're reading and reciting Psalm 126 as a community. And I think it's important that we recognize they did this as a community. Because when God acts in amazing ways in our lives, God does not intend that experience to be contained to you and you alone. When God delivers you from illness, when God gives you tremendous circumstances in your life. I think about pastors who are trying to do ministry in the city. Every pastor in the city has a housing miracle story. And whenever we tell each other, because, I mean, unless you're from San Francisco, it's, it is a miracle no matter what. And so we tell these stories and we encourage each other along the way. When, when God does those things in your midst, it's not just for you to experience and say, well, that's really good. No, God wants us to communally, collectively share joy. And we get that by looking at our lives, seeing that goodness, and sharing that in the context of our church. God doesn't want our memories of his goodness to fade in our, our single memory. He wants it to be repeated as a collective church. And so those of you who have experiences of God's goodness in your life, God helping you to overcome, God intervening, God showing you something, those are meant to be shared with one another. That's why I love meeting new people to our church, when we're doing part of the membership process we do in our church is that we have after a class, the, that the class is the content part. But my favorite part is actually every new member gets to sit down with an elder, a pastor, and usually in the context of hospitality in someone's home or over a meal. And what we get to do is my favorite question is, how did you get to know Jesus? Tell me who proclaimed the gospel to you. Tell me what God did. When I hear those stories, even though they may be very familiar to them, that stirs my heart. That encourages me. I was in an elder retreat this past week. 
got to go away, 15 other brothers, to, to talk about where God is going to lead us be, into the future. And one of the things that keeps coming up in our collective memory, and I wasn't even here for it. Our church has been around for about 40 years now. There's like two starting dates. This is hard to tell, 1975 or 1980, but probably around 40 years now. And God has done amazing things. I came in 2007, so I wasn't even there in 75. I wasn't even born in 75. Just trying to figure out my age. I'll tell you later. But one of the things that keeps coming up as we share about what God has done in the past is God gave us a building in San Francisco that is literally a miracle. Anytime you get any kind of building in San Francisco, it's a miracle. But the way that God gave us this building is tremendous. The church in the 90s had the foresight to buy. So it's on one street, two sides of the street. They, they had this long time on this one side. But they, the apartment complex across the street got for sale. And in the 90s, they had the foresight. We're going to buy it. We can use it for some small meeting rooms and we can house some people. But their dream was one day could God allow us to do something with this building. Now, it's housing. And it was low-income housing. And then in the early 2000s, they're like, well, this is the time. Actually, it's incredible, the timing. It was actually at the after the first dot-com kind of crash, and things were cheaper. And they're like, well, we should try now. And they went to the city, and they got shot down. They're not going to let you tear down housing. And then there's like many different planning commissions. But the church had a very, and it still has a very strong presence in the community serving families. And so some families, not even believers, were coming out to some of the hearings. They had some public hearings. And... We needed three, two of three votes to get this one. I think it was the planning commission or planning. There's like, there's like several of them. I can't remember specifically, but we had only one that was for us. And at this meeting, as people came up and showed and shared stories, one person changed their mind and they were able to tear down housing in San Francisco and build a church. And in 2005, we have this tremendous sanctuary where we're able to expand the kind of ministry where our reach is much more significant. As I share, think about that story. It's this tremendous joy of God's faithfulness. I'm going to tangent one second because I know you're in the middle of a building project, which is stressing Sam out, stressing all your staff out, and maybe be stressing you as members out. Let me give you one encouragement because I've seen this, even though I've been in the kind of beneficiary of faithfulness before me in our church. People did that and gave to it because they're frugal Chinese people. They paid it in cash, so they bought it. So we have no mortgage. That is a miracle, too. But it was 2001, so it's a lot cheaper back then. But one thing I've noticed, when you're done with the building, celebrate it, but celebrate it again and again. And share those stories of lives being changed. Share the stories of how God provided, because what the temptation is, you get a building, you're done, we made it, and it just kind of stops. And you can kind of just settle into this, well, we got it now. Most of you who have been in the church for a long period of time, you will remember this building. Many people will only remember that one. Tell the stories of what God has done throughout the history of your church as you look back. That's what will continue to stir joy in your church as you look back. Don't just let that moment just pass. Celebrate it annually. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness in the lives of people. Second, we don't just get joy by looking back. We also get joy by looking forward. Look at verses 4 to 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a look into the future. 
Now, we don't know what's caused this emotional shift, but there is. It's this kind of dramatic shift. It goes from shouts and, and kind of amazing high moments of emotions. And now, he, by mentioning the Negev, an arid desert, somehow he's now in the time of dry spiritual moments. Tears are flowing. And in the middle of these moments of dryness, he's still longing for joy. And so how does he do it? He, he looks forward. Not just looking back, he looks forward. And I think it's important seeing this kind of emotional shift in the psalm, that this kind of almost paradoxical thing that, from our perspective, exists in the Christian life. When we have joy in the Christian life, and we will, it's not apart, it's not detached from moments of sorrow. It's inclusive. As we follow Jesus, those things will coexist. You will have joy. You will also have sorrow. But that's surprising to us. As you go throughout life, and is sometimes maybe it's the way that we teach the gospel or the lack of teaching the comprehensiveness of the gospel, of denying ourselves and following Jesus, taking our cross. We, we sometimes get this picture that following Jesus should not have moments of dryness or sorrow. That's unfortunately even more in, from Western consumeristic views. We, we feel like Jesus should give us only moments of great joy, but that's not according to Scripture. We see the psalmist have this sudden shift. But it's not like joy has left him or that God has left him. But he is conditioning his emotions, his heart, his perspective to look forward. I think it's worth stating again and again because sometimes we, we are tempted to believe these false ideas that exist in our culture. A life with Jesus will include moments of sorrow intermixed with our tremendous joy. And that, that we think about this. this. This is true. When I ask older couples, I got to meet an old couple, older couple, amazing couple recently. I, actually, the first time I ever met someone who has great, great grandchildren. I was like, man, every generation after this couple had kids at like 20. So they actually are young enough to have, and like kind of energetic enough to have great, great grandchildren. That was amazing to me. And as I asked them, because I forget how long they've been married, but something over 50 years, and they're not even that old. I was like, this is amazing. Like, tell me about your marriage. How did, the, describe it to me in a short, in a short time. I had only a brief time with them, and they, they described it in general as great appreciation of one another, great joy in the Lord of giving each other in their marriage for so many years. And yet, as I pressed them a little further, even though that is true, it's not like it's detached from moments of difficulty, loss, and pain, and sorrow. Those things coexist. Think about our parenting. I saw many, many, many young kids. I, I love that. I'm raising a four-year-old and a two-year-old myself. In, oh, it depends on the moment. But in general, if you ask them, a young parent, how they're doing, with it, what it means to be a parent, most of them, the general description is joy and excitement and the graciousness of God. But it's not like they're like saying, well, everything is just smooth and my kids are always sleeping, you know, eight hours a night when they're like two weeks old. No, no, no. Like some parents, when they tell you that, I was just like, I kind of want to hit you because that's not my experience. I'm like, how did that happen for you? Why am I not so lucky? But it's mixed, isn't it? Many of our experiences of life, we recognize them not only to have joy, but also moments of sorrow. And that's the same for the Christian life. The Christian life if you have a perspective, if you hear of people with a perspective where there's no room for the lows, no room for sorrow, 
That's not only not true to scripture, that's exhausting. Because you're going to have to fake it. You're going to have to pretend. And that's exhausting. That's not what even Christ's experience was. We have an experience that's intermixed. Joy with sorrow. Look at Jesus says in John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Joy gets the last word. But it's not as if it's somehow detached from the world that is still affected by sin. That's important to realize. It's both and. When people expect a life with Jesus to have joy without sorrow, it's unbiblical, it's exhausting, and it's even unreal with Jesus. Think about the creator of the universe who had a perfect relationship within the Trinity. (laughs) How did he save us? By being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, that does not mean you just suck it up until heaven is here. When sorrow comes our way, there is a way to restore joy. And the psalmist is teaching us that. It comes from looking forward in prayer. It comes from looking forward for God to hold true to the promises that he has given to us. God is going to keep his promises. And the psalmist is nurturing that perspective. I'm looking forward to the day where God will make that true and that future reorients his present. There are two images in verses 4 to 6 to help us shape how we can look forward. In verse 4, look at this. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. The Negev is a dry desert in the southern part of the country. It rarely rains there, but it can, in a moment, kind of shower really significantly. And from the dead desert, you can see these amazing kind of blooms of flowers. And one of the driest places on the earth, you see a picture here behind me, the dry place, is Chile's Atacama Desert. It's one of the driest places in the world. It is, I think, the driest. It only sees rain five to seven, every five to seven years. But in 2017, there was this moment of surprising and heavy storms. And right after that, you get this small glimpse. Where This is why photographers from around the world, they flocked there. Because all of a sudden you see in the next picture, this is covered in beautiful flowers. It can just go from dryness and dead to a moment where it's just beautiful and alive. And that is how we can actually look forward. That is one way God wants us to draw near to Him. To come to Him longing for the dramatic and sudden changes. I think we need to remind ourselves, it's okay to ask God boldly for the things that would bring Him glory and honor and the things that would bring us closer to Him. I think we're afraid to ask God to work in these kind of from negative to flower moments because we feel like it's presumptuous, and it can be. If your your prayers are certainly selfish and temporal and only for you, God may not answer those things. But there are times in which we could ask for things boldly and dramatically that are good for the kingdom, that are good for us too. Now it's true God doesn't always work in those ways, but we're, we're told it is good. It is good to cry out to God for Him to do that. Because some of you, if you have not already experienced that, maybe right now you're in the middle of it, but if not in the past, not right now, you will have times in which it'll feel for five to seven years even, maybe longer, where it feels dry. 
and dead. And in those moments, it's not as if God left us. He's calling for us in those moments to look forward, to ask Him. Because He has a history. Even in those moments where it seems like God is not left, He's still there. After Malachi, there's this tremendous, they call it in scholarly terms, it sounds very technical, intertestamental period. I, I just think of it as God not saying anything for 400 something years, 400, 450 years. God didn't leave them. Many people were crying out. Many people were longing. Some of those people who were longing, crying out, died before even Christ came. And yet God was still, as they were looking forward, shaping their joy in the present. As God has continued throughout history to remain faithful. We ask Him by looking forward, even asking Him boldly to keep His promises to us. We also, not just in bold ways, look forward. We also, sometimes we need to have the sustainable long-suffering looking forward too. God doesn't always rescue us dramatically and suddenly. It's often slow, like the second image. Look at verses 5 to 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bears the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bring his sheaves with him. That's a farmer agricultural metaphor. and Farmers understand their work is slow. It requires patience. Before having children, my wife and I often would, and this before children because we don't get to Napa, I don't think we've been to Napa since our kids were born, but we'd go up there and I loved learning about viticulture and learning what the, the, the farmers were doing and growing grapes, understanding vines. I, I learned, and I don't know if I'm accurately stating this, if you know more about vines and grapes than I do, please correct me afterwards, but some of the grapes, I remember hearing that when you first plant a vine, it produces fruit. But to actually have fruit that's worthwhile to use in wine, sometimes you have to wait 12 years. You plan something, you have to wait 12 years to get something in return. The work of a farmer is long and patient, looking forward. And it says here, to, to sow in tears. Maybe we don't think about farming as much, but we, we do understand financial terms. You, you have to invest your tears for the long run of joy. If you don't invest your tears well, you won't bear the fruit of joy. And what does it mean to invest your tears? It means to take the sorrow that comes, and it will, and take that and run to God. Don't run from Him. See, the temptation that occurs when things go bad is we run away from God. We don't run to him often. We don't run with, to him and say, God, I, I don't understand this. God, this is, this is painful. I know you're in control, but what is going on? Because as you run to him, investing those tears, your relationship is sustained. Your relationship is still there. And God, as he's present with you, will continue to Remind you of his promises. Remind you of the joy that is to come. Think about the, the suffering servant who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, Jesus, he faced sorrows and suffering. See, when we face struggles, we often don't invest our tears because we're asking the question, why me? 
Why do I have this illness? Why did I not get that particular position? Why did I get accepted? Why does my child have such a difficult time in school? Why does my child have this particular learning disability? Why is my spouse so X? You fill in the blank. We ask, why me? Which is not investing our tears. It is turning ourselves inward, running away from God, dwelling in our despair rather than dwelling with God. But if we invest our tears without asking the question, why me? By asking God with him, what are you doing? Not in a dismissive, like, questioning way, but God, I want to understand. I know these, these kind of seeming truths don't seem true to me now. I don't feel that. At least I know you're in control. I know you want good for me. I don't know how this is happening. Show me. Bring me to a place where I can grasp that. That is what it means to invest our tears. Think about Jesus, who truly understands sorrow. He was a savior when a night he was arrested and betrayed, he said this in Mark 14. And he said to them, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. We invest our tears by bringing them to Jesus. As we're tempted to ask the question, why me? We realize we have a Savior who asked the same question. Why have you forsaken me? We know the answer. We sung it. Your church proclaims it. It's the gospel. And that, that needs to be pressed in. We have a Savior who asked that question and didn't get an answer because we needed salvation through a substitute. He died, died not for our, his sins, but for ours. So we could be redeemed. He asked the question, why have you forsaken me? Because if we have trust in his sacrifice, you and I will never be forsaken. And so we can run to him with our tears. We bring our sorrows to the man of sorrows because we know he has conquered everything. Everything. And he promises to one day return and make all of that new. But in the meantime... There will be moments where sin in our world, sin in our lives, sin around us affects us, causes sorrow, causes pain, and we run to Him. Because our tears invested in Christ, bringing it to Him, will produce the fruit of joy. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we face our sorrows... And you will. We will discover and rediscover joy by bringing our tears to the foot of the cross because we know there is victory there. There is a promise keeper there. One of the moments I experienced this in my life where deep sorrow was turned into joy, where I felt like the Spirit was working in a very similar way was we were having our first child. My first daughter, Malia, when she, my wife was pregnant, uh, I went to all the doctor appointments with her. But the one doctor appointment I didn't go with her was the worst one and the one I should have went to because she had got, you know, she had taken, I forget what kind of tests they were, but the correlation tests for abnormalities of birth defects. And she went to that one appointment. I didn't go with her. And that was the one where she got news that the doctor told us that our first child would have 50% chance of abnormalities or even premature death. And to make that worse, I had to go pick her up. My wife was frustrated with me not being there and there's tears and I, I had not remembered, and until to this moment, I don't remember weeping like that ever in my life. There was very little sleep that night, and 
I didn't know what to do. I wanted to avoid God. I was frustrated with God, and I just didn't know how to feel. In the morning, going to his word, just even the weakest of prayers, asking the Spirit to just, I just need you to be present. There was this return. A small strength came to me as the Holy Spirit was repressing the gospel into my life. And it was kind of like those moments. It wasn't in that day. But I, I began to see that, that tremendous dryness begin to rediscover life in abundance again. As I didn't run from him. If Jesus' death is the worst thing that happened in all of history, and he can make that into our salvation, God can redeem every bit of your life. Every bit of deadness, every bit of dryness, no matter how long it is, no matter how painful it is, Christ can and has redeemed it. Friends, we, we all need joy. Joy from the Lord, joy in the Lord. And I love Psalm 126 as it begins to help us understand how to find it. Let this, as you're sitting with it, maybe later today or later this week, as you, in your mind, return to this, remind yourself, what has God done? What's the past faithfulness of God? And let that turn you into a moment of joy, of shouting, of celebrating. And look forward. If you're in that moment of dryness, if you have a friend who's experiencing dry times, help them to look forward, clinging to the promises of God, as God will continue to remain faithful until he returns. Friends, would you pray with me? Would you take just a moment to even just speak with him, whether it's silence or just even crying out to him and the emotions that you are feeling as you are facing right now, whether it be tremendous appreciation for the goodness that you know and experience now or the dryness that you want to bring to him. Father, we want to be people who overflow with joy that is found in the victory of Jesus over sin and death, in the resurrection that gives us hope for eternity and present living hope for everyday life. Father, let us, by your spirit and your word and the church community, apply these truths to ways that it begins to reshape perspectives, it reshapes circumstances of difficulty, it helps us to find true and lasting joy that is found in your presence and being with you. Father, for my friends who are in those moments of difficult times of sorrow, who are facing loss that is so difficult even to express, we praise you that your Son and your Spirit even express, as we know in Romans 8, the things that we can't. And may that provide comfort to my friends in those times. May they run to you, not from you. I pray as we come to the table, Father, that it would remind us of the historical, real transformation we have that gives us joy of victory. Father, may you get rece receive praise. May you get glory from your word preached, from the lives transformed, from this church continuing to proclaim Jesus as it does so with great 
overflowing joy as it looks to you. In Christ's name, amen.